Greetings, I'm Steve Van Core, and this is the FC CMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. I'm your host. Each episode, we interview someone from a city or a county who's in a position to share interesting and useful insights into the operations of local government right here in the Sunshine State. And we continue today on our small city excursion with Mark Ryan, who is the city manager of Indian Harbor Beach. The interesting thing about Mark, he is Brevard County through and through. Before uh, Indian Harbor, uh, Indian Harbor Beach, I know there was a big movement in Florida for for a while to to add beach to a bunch of names. We saw that with Lake Worth. Lake Worth went from Lake Worth to Lake Worth Beach uh, and was also the city manager of Titusville. Uh, I love this episode because Mark is a strong advocate of legislative activism, which tells you something about his style. Because if you're the typical city manager, you're worried about the day-to-day, the day-to-day things, your budget, fixing problems, taking care of business. When you're good, like a good restaurant manager, you're able to take a 30,000-foot view. Mark is the kind of person who has a 30,000-foot view, and he wants to make sure the, the provision in Florida's constitution protecting home rule authority is continue to protect, to be protected. Mark, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. It's my pleasure to be here. So legislative advocacy, so I live in Tallahassee, something near and dear to my heart. Uh, and I love hearing that you wake up at five o'clock in the morning, review legislation and send out emails. What's that like? And what got you started doing that? Well, about five years ago, I was asked to serve on the Florida City County Manager Association's Legislative Committee as the chair. So I took it upon myself to begin... Subscri- they volunteered you to be the chair? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, they had to tie my hand behind my back. <laughs> but uh, I began following the legislative process, started subscribing to the legislative uh, House and Senate pages, following bills, getting email notices when bills are filed that are interested to the communities, not only to Indian Harbor Beach, but statewide. And I, I get these legislative alerts, and I take and go through all the bills that are filed on a biweekly basis and send out uh, information to the members of the legislative policy committee meetings to try to engage our members on bills that are important to them. Now, it may be uh, home home rule like House Bill 403 that just passed the Florida legislature that uh, preempts local governments from uh, home-based businesses with some exceptions, and it's a huge impact to local governments. And we we try to get our members engaged to try to get the the bills killed. Sometimes we're successful, sometimes we're not. You know, House Bill 403, I think, bothered me more than most other home rule bills. And for those who don't know, it's in our Constitution, unlike most states that says we have home rule authority. And, and you could argue what falls under that jurisdiction, but I don't think you can argue with a straight face that allowing home-based businesses is the state's job. It is absolutely 100% a zoning issue. It's a neighborhood safety issue. It's a neighborhood protection issue. It's an integrity of home issue. And the fact that the legislature is now overriding uh, local government's ability to say, you can't have a mechanic shop, you can't do motorcycle repair where there might be oil and traffic and people coming and going all day long. And the irony about this, and I'll just let me go on for one second, is local government loves home-based business. We love and support whether it's 
uh, Airbnb kind of businesses. It's when they cross the line, we need the authority to stop them from being bad neighbors. Absolutely. You know, in our in Harbor Beach, about 20% of all our business tax receipts are home-based businesses. So we embrace the entrepreneurship of a home-based business. So this legislation will circumvent that and allow businesses within the community that are generally restricted to a commercial area. It doesn't allow the cities to regulate the hours of operation of such businesses. And it's just, again, a zoning uh, usurping of zoning by the Florida legislature. See, and what bothers me about it is I see this as an invasion of my property rights. I buy a home, uh, I, and I should have the peaceable enjoyment of that home. If my neighbor decides to open up a welding business in his, his or her spare time and is out in the garage at night making loud noises, keeping my kids up, my, I can't call my city and say, hey, uh, code enforcement uh, at Indian Harbor Beach, please come in and enforce this. Well, we're no longer allowed to do that. That's really bothersome to me, and that's an invasion of my property rights. And I, and I think that's where the legislature kind of got off track. And it's also important to know that all of us as homeowners, that's the biggest investment we ever make. And before we make that investment, we do our due diligence to know whether that home is in a flight path of an airport or to know whether it's next door to a wastewater treatment plant that we know doesn't make Chanel number five at it. <laughs> and so that's part of the process that we go through as homeowners to know what, what can occur in our neighborhood. And that includes home-based businesses. And the fact that they they promoted this as you know property rights. Well, my property right you know ends where your nose begins, right? Um, so so you you got involved in that. That was a losing issue. I know we won and we beat back further restrictions on um, the short term rentals. Uh, we were successful uh, in, in beating those things back. Uh, let me bring up a bill that I thought was emblematic of this aggression towards city. And I, I think we've gone from. Disdain to aggression. Um, there was a bill introduced. It did not pass, but it was so symbolic. When you look at a city government in action, a commission meeting, you've been to hundreds of them, I'm sure. Uh, who's standing at the mic before the commission? It's regular citizens. When you go to the legislative body, it's mostly professional lobbyists. And they introduced a bill to say you're not allowed to limit public input. You have a really interesting story to tell about it. Tell me about that story. Yes, sir. Several years ago, there was a a bill called House Bill 17 that would prohibit cities from regulating businesses or or items in, in the community that was not authorized by Florida law. For example, adult entertainment is not a issue that local government can regulate under Florida law. So this bill would have pre- preempted the city from having adult entertainment regulations. So if you wanted to say we can't have an adult entertainment thing near a school, this bill would have preempted that. That's correct. So uh, this bill sponsor I worked with to share my concerns, and to his credit, I drove to Tallahassee five hours to testify on the bill. Now, during the committee hearing, the, uh, the bill sponsor presented the bill. I made myself aware that I was there to testify, and to his credit, he made sure that I was one of the, the folks that was allowed to testify. You're a very gracious person because a Representative Fine was sponsoring this hostile bill, and you're giving him all the credit in the world. <laughs> well, we, we have legislators that we have to work with throughout our careers, good, and good we point. want to make sure that they are given credit when, they're, when it's need to and then also given respect. Yes, 
So at this point, uh, I was to testify, and there was probably several hundred people there to testify. Uh, the bill was controversial, and the chair of the uh, committee had to leave to go to another meeting, so they suspended the meeting temporarily until he could get back. So when he returned and testimony began, he limited testimony to one minute. So at that point, I'm in the queue to speak. I get a chance to say what I needed to say for one minute, which I needed more, of course. But halfway through, uh, another two or three speakers, they announced, we're running out of time. You only have 30 seconds from here on out. They ran out of time, and there were hundreds of speakers, including the Florida League of Cities, that didn't get a chance to speak. So what happens? A local city decides, you know what? We're going to limit local community involvement. You guys sometimes limit it to three minutes, but I know from direct experience, city council meetings, county commission meetings go to two, three, and four o'clock in the morning because they're allowing local government local government allowing people to come up and speak and participate, not in some symbolic. Last year, there was a a committee, they let people speak for 10 seconds. You could barely get your name out in 10 seconds. But yet they wanted to tell local government, you can't limit anybody, yet we're limiting people too. And you felt blessed and lucky to be given a full minute. That's correct. That's that's that speaks to I think the the level of arrogance. What do you see coming up in the future that we need to be worried about? Uh, maybe bills that have died that may be resurrected. What you you've been around the process now a while. What do you what do you see coming next? Uh, I've been dealing with uh, short term rentals now for more than five years, having traveled to Tallahassee to speak on those issues on numerous times. Uh, it it didn't pass this year. I suspect it will be back next year. So. The communities that have short-term rental regulations that existed prior to 2011 are grandfathered in, but communities like Indian Harbor Beach that doesn't have pre-11 regulations have to abide by the the rules that went in place in 2014 that said you could regulate them, but you cannot limit them or restrict their duration. So our community was fortunate enough to create some regulations that we think are common sense. For example, we are a beach community. And being in the Atlantic Ocean, there's a very high degree of probability of having rip currents. It's very dangerous. So we require in the short-term rental warning information so that if you're here from Wisconsin or Canada, you know the dangers of rip currents in the ocean in the community you're visiting. That's a very common sense regulation that would would go away if the legislature preempts the cities from these type of regulations. You know, I, I don't see these, uh, yes, the term regulation, but I see these as local government, local cities, local communities protecting their neighbors, protecting their properties, ensuring public safety, because a lot of this is about, and your, your issue of, hey, allow us to put warning signs up, whether it's turtle lighting or whether it's riptide uh, signage, uh, weather signage, evacuation routes. This is about public safety. And the fact that a company that I regularly use, VRBO or Airbnb, would then lobby the legislature and say they're not allowed to enact public safety regulations, that's very bothersome to me because you're dealing with rip kites. Destin 
doesn't have those kind of riptides. They have something else. Maybe they have uh, uh, an infusion of uh, sand uh, uh, skates with, with the, the stingrays or something, and, and they want to have some safety regulations. And I know up in there, they have a lot of weddings and a lot of you know beachfront weddings. And so what happens is these homes become party zones. We jokingly call it Sleeps 20. And now this is an invasion of my public safety, my public rights. It also is an invasion. When you plan your city, you plan your wastewater treatment plant for so many flushes per bedroom. That's what dear engineers do. Now suddenly if a house with three bedrooms gets inverted to sleeps 20, you've got a wastewater treatment problem as well. Absolutely. The infrastructure for the community is sized for a single family home or multifamily home that has four or six people occupying the home. Now you've made that two, two or three times higher, you've added an issue to the infrastructure for the community. Another great example, as I mentioned, uh, we have rip current regulations in in our homes. You wouldn't expect that information in Mount Dora. You might expect black bear information in Mount Dora, but you won't expect black bear information in in the Harbor Beach. So each city is different, but they also have the ability or need to protect the residents that around the vacation rental, as well as the visitors, so that it's a good environment for them to visit our state, our community, and feel welcome. You know, what I wish, if I could wish something, I wish we had a constitution that governed our state, and I wish in that constitution was a provision that said we let local governments handle these types of activities. Don't you wish we had that in our Constitution? Well, we do have a home rule uh, <laughs> issue in the Constitution that is allowed there, but sometimes we have some, some end-arounds that are created. Yes, and that seems to be uh, more and more common and more and more aggressive. Let's shift gears a little bit because we hear a lot about economic development, and economic development, we all agree, is important. Economic state sustainability is important. But what we don't talk about enough is what does that look like? And I want to hear... Because that's one of your areas. What what have you guys been doing to help spur economic development, especially during a time of a pandemic? I'll give you two examples: one pre-pandemic, one post-pandemic, uh, one during the pandemic. The uh, during the pandemic, being a small city in our reach, we didn't have a lot of funds available to help the restaurants or the business community stay solvent and, and being uh, thriving during the pandemic. So what we went to the city council and said, look, we don't have this large sum of money, but what we can do is we can offer to renew the business tax receipt or the former occupational license to all the businesses in the community at no cost. It wasn't a lot of money, but the the types of thank yous and accolades that we got out of that was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. If I'm a mom and pop pizza store or a little Italian restaurant, a couple thousand dollars is the difference between staying open and closing. So th- that was a home run for us, as well as for the local community. They, they said, hey, we recognize Indian Harbor Beach doesn't have this large pot of money to give out grants and whatever for businesses. But they went to bat for us. They implemented this program of waiving the, the business tax receipt for a year. And that means a lot that, that the city is saying, hey, businesses, you mean as much to us as we, you mean to Yeah, and and you're a small city of 8,500, is that right? Yes, sir. And so you don't have these, you know, billion-dollar budgets, $800 million budgets. So you're limited in terms of infrastructure and other things you can do, so doing something like that. So that was during the pandemic. Yes, sir. Well, you said you had an example of something you did before the pandemic. Correct. Uh, In my prior community, I was city manager in Titusville, across from the Kennedy Space Center. We had the double whammy of the end of the space shuttle, and the burst of the housing bubble. 
So property values declined. We had tons of foreclosures in the community. We had commercial plazas that basically became ghost towns. So I worked with the county commissioner to create what's called the North Brevard Economic Development Zone. And it's modeled after a CRA. A CRA, okay that took the tax increment revenues that occurred in the community and put it back into economic development. And the, the big issue there was there was a brand new uh, Florida Power Light power plant that was constructed. We were able to take that huge increase in property values in that uh, new power plant and use that as kind of the jump starter for the economic development zone. And so give me an example of how that money gets spent. You get that extra money. How did, what did you do? Put new sidewalks in, new parking, on-street parking. What did you do? We, we actually did it for projects that brought jobs to the community. For example, there was an old uh, shopping plaza that was in disarray and, and basically a ghost town. It was bought up by a developer. We provided incentive money for the developer to, to rebuild the plaza into an open-air plaza that the community embraced, and it brought hundreds of jobs to the community as well as bringing back the, the economy. Another factor is... We so were- that was a straightaway... Because uh, this has become the, the soup du jour, right? Which is everybody's giving money, and now all of a sudden everybody's going, "Give me money, give me money, give me money." But you guys did this ahead of time, ahead of this kind of arms race of giving money to people to build. Right. This was our ability to reinvest into the zone to bring businesses and jobs to the community. And in a very targeted way, you just didn't throw up the flag and say, we'll give somebody money for coming here. You found a location, you worked with the developer, you brought it back, and that helped stir some of that economic That's correct. Another example was uh, Embraer brought their operations, some of their operations to Brevard County, and most of it's in South Brevard, but we were able to bring a portion of that operation to the Titusville area uh, with money from the zone to invest back in the community that brought hundreds of jobs to the community. Now, did they, you require them to be in the zone? They had to be in the zone. They had to create investments of new buildings and guaranteed numbers of jobs for the community. And the return on investment has to be huge. It's four or five-fold, yes. That's excellent. Anything else on economic development you want to share with our colleagues? Well, again, I think each community is different. But I think most communities want to bring jobs to the community. They want to make sure that that circle of economic development continues, that if you bring the jobs, there's going to be ancillary jobs that oh, yeah. come with it. So that's, that's something that all managers and, and local governments need to look for. That's really, that's really excellent. Okay, so our last segment is uh, tell us something cool about Indian Harbor Beach. Well, Indian Harbor Beach is the first city on the east coast of Florida to be tsunami-ready. What does that mean? Uh, My predecessor worked with uh, NOAA to create a program where we were tsunami ready. We actually have a siren that will go off in the event of a uh, tsunami approaching the community. There's buoys out in the Atlantic Ocean that will provide advance warnings to the community. Now, did NOAA put the buoys out there? Yes, NOAA put the buoys. But we have an actual plan that's in place. We have sirens and we have drills every year to ensure that if something were to occur, such as a tsunami, that we can alert the community, they would be told where to go, like to our rec center, and then presented to where to go from there. So we we, we interviewed a city manager of Paradise, uh, California. That was the famous city that the campfire burned down 85%. And we talked about why they had so few human lives lost and she talked about training. And I envision training as you go into a conference room and everybody talks about what they would do. They literally went out and, and practiced 
in the event of a fire, literally reversing the street flow, having traffic go that way, having everybody assigned a job. What does your training for a tsunami look like? Uh, every year we have a drill where... Is it a public drill or is it... No, just city personnel. Okay. Where we uh, will send the personnel at a specific time to their specific assignments. For example, public works must go to the beach parks and put barricades up, you know, park closed and start to begin the process of what would have been a potential evacuation of the beachfront So community. they're going out there doing it, whistles, sirens, whatever. How long before a tsunami is detected and it, and it arrives on shore? What's the average life of, of a tsunami? The science is out there that we can get advance notice of, of probably four to six hours. Four to six hours. Okay, kind of like 1908 with hurricanes. <laughs> I mean, that's about how much I mean. Hey, there's a big storm off the horizon there. We're not quite sure what it is. Now we see it forming off the coast of uh, Africa many, many, many days in advance. But you got four hours to move people very far inland. We basically evacuate the beach side because we believe that the height of the uh, rest of the community will pr- provide the protection that is needed. Okay, so it's only along the beach you're really terribly yes, worried about the that. condominiums. Excellent, excellent. Folks, we've been interviewing Mark Ryan from Indian Harbor Beach. Mark, this has been fantastic and very educational. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Steve. It's my my pleasure. Folks, this is Steve Van Cor, and this is the FCCMA Podcast, a service produced by and for the Florida City and County Management Association. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us.